Thomas Merton was one of the great spiritual writers of the 20th century. He was a Benedictine monk. Spent his entire adult life at the Abbey of Gethsemane in the rolling hills of Kentucky. And he wrote over 60 books on the spiritual life in a little room there. When people say, hey, I think I'd like to read Merton, I always warn them that early Merton is very different from later Merton. He burst into the scene in 1948. He wrote a best-selling memoir describing his conversion called Seven Story Mountain. And it's a wonderful book, but it's filled with disgust for the world. He believed that the decadent society around him was in flames, and he fled to the monastery to save his soul and focus on his inner life. Merton's later books are very different. They reveal great compassion for the suffering world. And a matter of fact, he pins some of the most beautiful English prose we have about the connection between prayer and serving others. And his later work really reflects the vision of discipleship that we find in the teaching of our Lord. Because Jesus does call us to a rich inner life. But that rich inner life overflows in service to others. In other words, there's a private dimension to discipleship and a public dimension to discipleship. Uh, Following Jesus does shape how we live and act in the world. And so this fall, we're considering five gospel passages that help disciples understand how to live in the world. And our scripture tonight is Luke 4, 16 to 21. Jesus has been anointed by the Spirit, tested in the wilderness, and now his public ministry begins in Nazareth, his hometown. I'll read that again. I think we have a little map up there. When he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, he went as was his custom to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Do we have the, uh, the map? Um, there we go. So he's up in his hometown. You can see Nazareth up there in um, the Galilee. And that's where he and Joseph and Mary grew up. And he regularly attended the little synagogue there. The ruins of it are still there. Obviously, he was a devout Jew, and visiting teachers would come and read scripture in the midst of the service, which was pretty informal. There'd be maybe 30 people there, uh, consisted of prayers, scripture reading, discussion, and then you'd give alms to the poor. What was unusual is what Jesus said. So he goes to the scroll box, and he pulls out this great Isaiah scroll, And we've actually found a copy of one um, in the Qumran caves. That's a a picture in a museum of what the scroll would have looked like. Um, And the whole book of Isaiah would have been on one scroll. And so Jesus reads, he unrolls the scroll as he stands in in the synagogue. And And he flips, well, I guess you don't flip through a scroll, scroll. what would the word be? He he, uh, Somehow he unrolls it and he goes to Isaiah 61. He knows exactly where he wants to go. 
The original setting for the prophecy, and Rob, you can go to the next slide there, was ruined Jerusalem. And Babylonian armies have gutted the city and dragged most of Israel's uh, citizens across the desert. And now some have come back to Jerusalem. But when you think of Jerusalem, when Isaiah was writing, think of uh, Ukraine. I mean, just bombed out. Just the parts of it that are just desolate. It was a very difficult time in Jerusalem. And the prophet Isaiah, in the first half of the book, talks a lot about God's judgment and discipline. In the second half, he talks about God's hope. And he introduces a figure called the servant, beginning about 53. And the servant is this messianic figure that is going to come and suffer for the sins of the people and bring hope and the dawn of a new, uh, new era of salvation. Now, Jesus will say at the end of this reading, that's me. That's what's so remarkable about this opening sermon. Now, before we actually look at uh, Jesus' sermon, I, I want to make two observations. Um, the first is that Jesus is really quoting two texts here, not one. He's quoting Isaiah 61, 1 to 2, and Isaiah 58, verse 6. And in red, you can see that. Now, this was a common um, practice among rabbis. They would kind of mash the different scriptures together. Um, and they would do it as a way to kind of hyperlink to another part of the Bible to say, hey, while you're reading this passage, remember this passage. Now, Isaiah 58 is a passage that connects caring for the poor with the mission of God. Let's um, read it here, and you'll see that where he lifts this phrase from. This is just a few verses from it. Uh, is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And then you shall call and the Lord will answer and you shall cry. And he will say, here I am. What's Jesus doing here? It's his way of emphasizing that the servant, the Messiah, has come to bring justice and to care for the poor. Now, second observation. Um, Jesus breaks one of the original sentences off in mid-sentence. And this is kind of interesting. He ends his reading with the verse saying that the servant will come to proclaim the year of the Lord, Isaiah 61.2 adds the phrase, and the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus chooses when he reads it not to read that phrase. Now why? We don't know for sure. Jesus does teach on judgment in the Gospels, but here in his opening statement of what he wants to do in the world, he decides to leave this verse on judgment out. And perhaps it was, perhaps he was just wanting to kind of focus on hope uh, 
and, uh, and not so much judgment in his description of his, of his mission. Now, let's look at the passage Jesus reads in the Nazareth synagogue that morning so long ago. It begins, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news. And again, at the end of the story, he will say, and I'm the, the servant of the Lord. Now, the spirit of the Lord is the anointing of the Lord. Um, the crowds have witnessed Jesus be anointed by the Holy Spirit when he was baptized. The word anoint is related to the Jewish title Christos, meaning anointed one or Messiah. So Jesus is saying, I am the Christos, I am the Messiah, I am the anointed one. Now his mission is to proclaim good news to the poor. Remember, this is his inaugural sermon. This is the, the first time he speaks publicly that we know of, at least in Luke's gospel. And so it's important. It's the first thing he says. And so he says, I'm, here's what I'm about. I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, who are the poor? Well, the Bible speaks of the poor in two ways. Sometimes the Bible talks about the poor in spirit. People who are humble and realize their desperate need for God. That's a common way. And Jesus certainly has the poor in spirit in mind when he contemplates his mission. And, and you, can, you can read what he says here and read it kind of spiritually. Uh, he's going to proclaim liberty to people who are in bondage to sin. He's going to give people eyes to see the gospel, to, uh, give them forgiveness that's made possible at the cross. So certainly Jesus comes with good news for anyone who acknowledges their need for God. The second and more common way the word for poor is used in the Bible is to describe those who are economically poor and living on the margins of society and struggling to survive. The literal poor, the material poor. And we can be pretty sure that when Jesus' audience heard him talk about coming for the poor, they would have not just thought about the spiritual poor. They would have thought about the material poor. Many of them were poor themselves. They were crushed by massive Roman taxes. Uh, there was a famine during that period. There was disease. And so they would have understood this as economic poverty as well as spiritual poverty. So what we're saying, we kind of said this two weeks ago, Jesus comes for anyone who is humble and recognizes their need for God, especially the poor, the economic poor. Now, how does he go about caring for them? Well, he describes his ministry to the poor in four different ways. He says, he will proclaim liberty to the captives. He will recover sight to the blind. He will set at liberty the oppressed. And he will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, most scholars will tell us that these are four different 
metaphors for his saving work. They're not distinct ministries, but they all illustrate what he means by caring for the poor. And Luke gives us an illustration of what he meant a few verses later in chapter 4. This is immediately what happens after Jesus leaves Nazareth. And I don't, I don't think I gave a verse for this, so just listen. This is how Jesus carries out this mission. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue. He entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her, rebuked the fever, it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak. Because they knew that he was the Christ. How does Jesus care for the poor? First, Jesus ministers in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the opening part. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. We'll talk about that in a minute. Second, Jesus meets immediate physical and emotional needs in a manner that restores hurting people to a productive role in their community. Jesus is physically healing people. He is literally casting spirits out of them. And in the ancient world, that also meant returning them to the ability to make a living. Because there was no social net for people who were sick and ill. And as you notice with Peter's mother, the very next thing she does, she starts serving the community. So... A very important part of Jesus' ministry to the poor is empowering them, healing them, restoring them so that they can play a productive role in their community. And last, Jesus proclaims the gospel. He doesn't just come to serve the poor. He's come to proclaim the good news. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. He sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in this story, uh, the demons themselves do the preaching. Now, I'll walk you through that, and I'm going to try to, as we ended with application, here's what I want you to think about. This is what I think we're learning 
Jesus comes to proclaim good news to the poor. As disciples, we want to follow the example of Jesus. Therefore, an essential practice of faithful discipleship is caring for the poor. I'm going to read that little syllogism again because it's, it's really important. And, and if you disagree with it, that's okay, but know why you disagree with it. Jesus comes to proclaim good news to the poor. As disciples, we want to follow the example of Jesus. Therefore, an essential practice of faithful discipleship is caring for the poor. Now, let me end by just asking, how can disciples care for the poor? First, follow the Spirit. Follow the Spirit. Someone I love and respect who has exhibited a lifelong commitment to caring for hurting people texted me after the first sermon of this series, and the text went something like this. They said, you know, I believe everything you said tonight. Um, I believe about the Christian priority of caring for the poor, but I, I need to tell you, I just told my therapist that I'm so exhausted all I can do is get through, uh, she's a teacher, get through, she lives in another state, my work and be present to my husband. I don't have anything left to give. I don't have anything more to, any more space for any of this. And she said, by the way, my therapist said that many people are feeling like this after the pandemic. I just can't do what you asked tonight. So, how can Jesus' call to care for the poor be a joyful invitation and not a shameful burden? And uh, I bet many of you are like my friend. You're a compassionate person. Your heart breaks. You believe everything we've said tonight, but, but honestly, you just don't have anything more to give. Well, just start with a simple prayer to the Spirit. Ask the Spirit to show you what it looks like for you to care for the poor. Uh, I think it was about 25 years ago that my understanding of the gospel broadened and I began to believe that authentic discipleship involves being involved with the poor. And that's when I started to pray that the Spirit would show me what to do. And over the years, here's a couple of things that I've heard at different times and different seasons. Doug, you're the poor. You need my healing touch. There are seasons for everything. This is not a season for adding more. It's a season for rest. Look around you. You're already caring for people who are hurting. Remember, I came for everyone. Yes, I have something for you, but let's not rush into it. Yep, it's time. Take a step. Move. Realign your life. Don't quit. Be careful. What you're doing is not sustainable. Good work. It's been a good run. It's time to step back, rest, and see what is next. So I think the first way that we can move towards this is just by praying to the Spirit. Just sitting with the Spirit, seeing what the Spirit would say to us about this. Well, Second, how do disciples care for the poor? Meet immediate physical and emotional needs in a manner that restores hurting people to a productive role in their community. In our first sermon, we, um, we looked at a few ways to do that. 
couple of ways to start showing mercy. I don't know if we have a slide of that, uh, Rob. Yeah, we talked about awareness, proximity, friendship, generosity, and prayer. Tonight, I want to briefly give you just one way all of us can um, follow the model of Jesus. We can passionately support a nonprofit organization serving vulnerable people we care about. That's something we can all do. The needs of our community are multi-layered and complex. Nonprofit professionals are experts in their area of need and they know the best way to use the resources. People like Marie and Sean and others give their whole lives to studying the needs of our community. And they face enormous financial and spiritual challenges. So one of the things that everybody can do is find one nonprofit serving an area that you really care about and passionately care for it. For example, I received an invitation from the Change Center. They said, hey, do you want to put on a, a, be one of the supporters for our Skate-a-thon fundraiser on Saturday, November 19th? And the Change Center is next to Overcoming Believers. It's, it's, a, it's a place for kids to have some fun and some safety and get their first job. It's becoming a community center as well. Now, suppose that you cared about gun violence and at-risk youth, and you have a full life and not much margin. Well, you could take that invitation. By the way, I've gotten maybe seven others of different things to support. You probably do too. Well, I'm saying pick one of these and become passionate about it. And it might, it might look like doing something like this. You could learn about the area that they're caring for, volunteer, fundraise, serve on the board, pray, share the vision with others, give sacrificially, care for staff. And this is something that, I, that every disciple, I think, should really consider. I'd go so far to say that. Well, maybe that's going too far. I, I, in my opinion, every disciple should be engaged with at least one nonprofit organization that's caring for the poor. I, I just think in our society, that's a practical way to do this. By the way, if any of you skaters out there want to host the Skate-a-thon, let me know. We'll end with this. Last, share the gospel. Um, I wrote a an article on ministry in the city years ago where I quoted St. Francis who said, preach the gospel wherever you go and if necessary, use words. And later I was um, doing more research on him and I was surprised to learn that we have no historical record he ever said it. Uh, which is a shame because it's just a great quote. Don't you hate it when, when history messes up your, <laughs> your urban legend? And actually, he never would have said it because he was a preacher. And like Jesus, he combined sharing of the gospel with acts of service. That's how Jesus ministered too. Now, a lot of us use that quote a lot. Um, and I think it's because we were reacting against an older ministry model that focused exclusively on evangelism. But the Francis misquote is itself an overreaction. <laughs> Jesus proclaims the gospel and serves the poor. Now, I think this is really, really important. Jesus' disciples care for the poor because we're living in a bigger story, a gospel story that gives meaning and hope to our lives. So it's a very good thing 
to help someone who's hungry. It's a good thing to help someone overcome addiction. It's a good thing to help a school be better. But by meeting these needs, as important as they are, it's not all a person needs. A person needs purpose and hope and love and forgiveness and salvation. So in addition to meeting physical needs, we need to tell the bigger story we live in. We really do. It needs to be a part of our compassion ministry. We need to tell the story that we're not alone in the world, that God is good and loving and real and present, that our relationship with him is distorted or broken by sin, that he desperately wants to welcome us home as his adopted children, that God sent his own son to die for us and make it possible for us to be restored to him, that we can be a part of a loving spiritual family that we get to join him in serving and healing the world. So make sure wherever you're caring, that at some time, in some way, you're sharing the gospel in both word and deed. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would meet us at the table now. And if there's anyone here tonight, perhaps, that, that, uh, that doesn't know you, uh, that uh, maybe they feel kind of alone, maybe they're aware of their own brokenness, maybe they're lacking some meaning and purpose. I pray if if that's where you are tonight, that you would, in your own words, just say to God, I don't want to be alone. I want a life of meaning and purpose. I'm tired of making life work by myself. I'm sorry for the ways I've tried to protect myself and be my own God. I'm exhausted. I turn to you and I ask for you to save me, heal me, love me. Show me what the next step looks like. If you pray that prayer tonight, let me know after and we'll get you started on a spiritual journey. Come and meet us at the table tonight, we pray.